Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I am here with Deb, and this is an an history endeavor to show the world and show the people, especially the United States, that what they've heard about women is false. And we can do that because we are women. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thank you. Oh, good. So... This is going to be a a very different show, ladies and gentlemen. We have found a woman. Usually we do two loyalists and two patriots. But when Deb found this story, we had to to bring it out. And it is going to be gruesome, which I guess is apropos for the Halloween, uh, (laughs) the day of Halloween coming up soon. But. It is showing the truth about the natives that were involved in the Revolutionary War. And Deb and I are really sick of everybody telling us how wonderful the, the, the Indians are, just how wonderful the Indians, especially with this latest uh, attack on Columbus, which was absurd to begin with. But the fact that the media let it go on is really disgusting, don't you think? Yeah, it's just another revision of history and, uh, you know, trying to push your political agenda without, with, with, by removing um, the context of the times and looking through history through 21st century perspective, which if you know, really want to know history and understand it, you cannot do. Um, it, it just really annoys me. And in in researching this, you know, for this show, um, revisionist history is all over the place. It's freaking amazing because we're going to touch on uh, some very um, sensitive to those who are offended easily uh, subjects tonight um, and the realities versus the myths and uh and and laying it all out, I think the bottom line of of this story is human nature. Human nature comes in all colors, sizes, temperaments, lineage, country of origin, whatever. It doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, what color you are. We all all humans and human nature throughout history has been colored by, or you know, the, the spectrum of human nature goes from you know freaking sainthood to despicable monster um, and everything in between. So 
you can't call one group better than another. Um, we're all human. We have all done things, you know. Um, we're all flawed. Free. We're all flawed. That's just yeah, the bottom line. We're all okay? we're we're flawed. Have, you know, we, we all rage. We all love. We all hate. We all, you know. Um, but there, there were parts of the world that uh, moved past a lot of the more base parts of human nature, and there were those who hadn't, you know, and that's just the way it is. And to to try to push your political agenda by basically non-truth or, you know, non-fact, um, it's it just, it's, it's human nature. <laughs> well, and... Uh- and unfortunately, tonight, we are going to have to go into the darker side of human nature. Um, yeah. And also some a good, good side as well, but mostly the darker side of human nature. And again, it's apropos because Halloween's around the corner. Now, this is the story. We're going into the, we're going to Pennsylvania, which is considered the Northern Theater, correct? Mid, the mid, mid-Atlantic state. Okay, so it's the middle theater then. That's what we're going to be going into. And normally, when we talk about Pennsylvania, and we've talked about it many times, we talk about the the Continental Congress being there. We've talked about Philadelphia. We talked about the siege of Philadelphia. What we haven't really haven't really uh, harped on has been the frontier. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there's a frontier in Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, my grandfather, um, when I was growing up, lived in Pennsylvania, and he lived out in the country. I mean, there's a lot of big country in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of wild places. And there's, I don't know, it's probably built up now, but at least when I grew up, he lived in the middle of nowhere. Um, And we have not really harped that much on the frontier, but we are going to today because Our Lady, which we don't have that much about her, you know, we have when she was born and she grew up and, and this horrible, horrible thing that happened to her and her family. And we have a little bit about, um, that she survived it. Her name is Delilah Corbley, and this is about her and the Corbley Massacre, which is considered one of the most ferocious, vicious, and horrible, brutal massacres of the American Revolution. But it has to be brought out because it is our history, ladies and gentlemen. It is part of us. And that's what the progs and the communists are trying to erase. And that's that our job here and the woman of the revelation, revolution is to make sure that these people are not forgotten, no matter how horrible they were, because history has got to be taught and taught and taught so it does not repeat itself. Now, with that, Deb's going to do a lot of this show. I have one article I'm going to be reading from, but she's going to be interjecting because we have to do a lot of background on this. Again, I said we haven't really talked about the frontier in Pennsylvania. So, now, did you find out when you looked up the uh, history of Pennsylvania's frontier, the dispute with Virginia? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Did I? Oh, good. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't understand that. And that was the same thing with New York and New Jersey. And we have yeah. talked about that. That was a big dispute yeah. as well. And that's when New Jersey split up from New York. And actually, they had to get the blessing of the king. So I wanna, I'm want curious to see what, how, what this dispute was. 
Okay. Well, my goodness, how convoluted this is. Um, and we could do a whole show on this, but I will try to give the highlights of it because it, it lasted a century, the dispute. <laughs> it lasted a century. So there were a lot of uh, political moves and, you know, a lot of uh, changes and twists and so, but anyways, um, this is from the virginiaplaces.org website in the Virginia-Pennsylvania boundary. And it says today, and they've got wonderful maps. Um, if you go to the site, you can see they have the uh, the original. Well, they have you know um, printed, uh, photos of the original map that they're talking about here, and it's a wonder anybody ever found their way home. That's all I could say. But anyway, today there is no common border between Virginia and Pennsylvania, but between 1681 and 1863, the southwestern border of Pennsylvania was shared with Virginia. Exactly what territory was Virginia and what was Pennsylvania was a challenge that took a century to resolve. The western boundary of Pennsylvania was established in William Penn's 1681 charter and was dependent upon the longitude of the eastern border, or boundary. Um, it says, they, the said lands to extend westward five degrees in longitude to be computed from the said eastern bounds, according to William Penn's charter, the western edge of Pennsylvania was supposed to mirror the curving boundaries to the east, so the width of the colony would be a constant five degrees in longitude. And I'm um, not quite sure even, you know, I mean, not being a math person and not really having ever had to deal with latitude and longitude, I'm confusing to me to begin with, but imagine... um, to other people back then when they were talking about such things and, you know, nobody hardly, a whole bunch of people had never seen maps, never mind, you know, knowing about latitude and longitude. William Penn was determined to acquire the Native American claims to his land by legitimate negotiations, negotiations and purchases, but his efforts to negotiate with fellow Europeans claiming land in North America were even more difficult. The fundamental problem was charter was that the point of beginning for his southeastern boundary did not exist. Penn's charter started with the intersection of a circle 12 miles from Newcastle, which is now located in Delaware, and the beginning of the fourth degree of latitude on the south by a circle drawn at 12 miles distance from Newcastle northward and westward unto the beginning of the 40th degree of northern latitude. However, The 40th degree is so far north of Newcastle that the lines never intersect. The geographic impossibility in the 1681 charter created great confusion between the Calverts of Maryland, the Pens of Pennsylvania, and even the gentry of Virginia. Some Pennsylvania officials tried to expand their claim by asserting that the beginning of the 40th degree of latitude was the 39th parallel, and therefore all land north of the 39th degree of latitude was included in Penn's grant. That extra, see, there were even lawyers then. (laughs) That extra degree of latitude would have moved the Maryland-Pennsylvania boundary to the south by roughly 69 miles. 
The southeastern corner of Pennsylvania was defined by Penn's charter. It was five degrees of longitude to the west of the southeastern corner. Until the eastern and southern boundaries of Penn's colony were defined, however, it was impossible to establish the western edge, and without accurate clocks, measuring longitude accurately on the frontier was a challenge. The confusion okay, among let me stop you right there. Let me stop okay. you right there, because i got to give some perspective in this, because I, had, I have had a land dispute with my neighbor for years, and we even went to court on it. And the way that they did the, the survey and the way that they are doing the longitude and latitude is exactly what has to be done. Now, my right. husband has a device that does that because the way that this subdivision goes, it's not straight up and down. It's sideways, okay? Mm-hmm. So you have to know where south, west, east, and north is, but here it's skewed. So south is not where you're going to point where you think it is. You've got to go over a little bit, and then you'll hit south. It's not completely straight line. Right. And the surveyors nowadays, which I love that George Washington was, because surveyors back in the day, they knew how to do this. These new surveyors, they either use a helicopter to go over, or they drive with a GPS. And what you need to do is your corner markers have to be you know, metal or cement corner markers because they have to be immovable. Well, they right. didn't do that up here. Oh. Yeah, no, they didn't. Now, down in Florida, they did. And the, the people that we, that we had our property surveyed in Florida, they did it properly. They walked the thing using the compass, and they uncovered the corner markers. And they had been around in Florida for like 150 years. It was a really old surveyor. And he, did, he made sure they did it the old-fashioned way. These new ones don't do that. So this is, everyone's thinking, oh, my God, long you left. No, it's really, really freaking important because I ended, up, I ended up gaining a half a quarter of an acre down in Florida, and everybody else gained land that they didn't even know they had because the uh, first surveyor was an idiot. We got the old-fashioned one. Up here, I lost an eighth of an acre. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you had to say, you know, I'm sure it was important to you for your property as well. Oh, yeah. It, it, um, we, were, we were lucky because uh, it was done the old-fashioned way, you know, and being that uh, George Washington's surveying office was, you know, right downtown in Winchester. I, I don't think people screw with surveying around kids. Oh, no, yeah. That's a good point. Very yeah. good point. But it's important, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, because our founding fathers, and I wish they would have put this in the Constitution, thought that the most important right we have is property rights. I mean, they knew all the unalienable rights, but they knew that the property rights would be the first ones to be (laughs) taken away because it happened in England all the time. And like she's describing, they're trying to do that as well, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody wanted, you know, their, I mean, God, Virginia was huge. And of course, um, they they were, you know, the Ohio Valley was, was, uh, wanted by everybody. Yeah, because of who won the last It was such rich land, right? Yes, yes. and plus the uh, the rivers there. Um, 
you know, the Mississippi and, and uh, oh, hell. Oh, anyways, the, the big rivers uh, were the the transportation highways. Um, right. For the, the uh, fur trappers and, you know, and the Indians, uh, the different tribes. Um, that's how they traveled. It was easier than going over land. Yeah. You got, got quicker. So, so this is what started it all, that, you know, Penn's map was off from the get-go. So, um, and so it was, uh, they, you know, so they, they had work. It was a challenge. It said that, you know, to, to figure out who was where and where was who, you know, and so, but then, and then, okay, so that that started it off. Now, the confusion among the colonists and officials in London was minor compared to the threat from the French. That nation did not accept the Western land claims of Penn, Calvert, or the Virginians, who asserted that King, King James I's second charter in 1609 granted them land from sea to sea and thus control over much of the Ohio River Valley. England and France were rivals for control of land in the North America fur trade since the start of the 17th century. French and English competition extended inland from the fishing fleets on the Grand Banks off Newfoundland to the Ohio River Valley. The 1748 Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle settled the War of Austrian Succession, one of the many French-English conflicts in Europe. North America was a minor sideshow in what was known as King George's War. The treaty negotiators who ended the conflict were more concerned with Europe and, re- and failed to resolve the claims of Virginia to lands that the French also claimed in North America. During King George's War, the colonists had captured Louisbourg, a French fortress on Cape Britain, island in Nova Scotia, with assistance from the British Royal Navy. This was a big deal in North America. It gave the English control over the valuable fishing grounds near Newfoundland. The Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle negotiators in Europe undid the capture. The treaty restored that fortress to France in exchange for territory captured by the French in India and Europe. The return of Louisbourg and the failure to resolve French claims to the Ohio River Valley made clear that English officials based in London considered the western extent of the American colonies to be just a subordinate boundary issue in international negotiations. Now, the French planned to expand their control of lands west of the Alleghenies. When English explorers were just beginning to penetrate lands west of the Shenandoah Valley in the 1740s, the French took action to link their outposts along the St. Lawrence River to other French settlements at the mouth of uh, that was at the St. Lawrence River, at the mouth of the Mississippi River and upriver in the Illinois country. In 1749, Captain Bienvenu de Salon canoed from Montreal down the Ohio River and then back up the Miami River to Lake Erie. The French buried lead plates on the Ohio River at various confluences of Major Creek while shouting Viva la Roy to establish the claim of the King of France to the Ohio River watershed. Perhaps more importantly, de Laurent chased British traders away from Native American villages. So that, the French um, planned to build a series of forts along the Ohio River, extending supply lines from Quebec, Montreal, on the St. Lawrence River, 
and this would trap the English colonies along the Atlantic Ocean, blocking any expansion west into the Ohio River, Mississippi River watersheds. And the French plans were triggered in part by plans of Virginians to expand in the same region. In particular, in 1749, the Lords of Trade in London approved a grant to the Ohio Company for up to 500,000 acres west of the Allegheny Mountains. The company was formed by members of the Virginia Gentry, who wisely included Governor Dinwiddie and the influential merchant in London, John Hanbury. Under the terms of the initial grant, in exchange for settling 100 families and building a fort within seven years, the company would earn its first 200 acres. Okay, so it goes on and, you know, how it happened and everything. And this was, you know, leading up to 1750. And uh, the Ohio company sent more families. And they had enough to get um, the 500,000 acres. And the location of the land grant was specified in 1752 is on the south side of the River Allegheny between the Kiskimanites. Creek and Buffalo Creek and between Yellow Creek and Cross Creek on the north side and between the Great Conway, uh, the Kanawha River on the southwest and to the west of the Allegheny Mountains on the east. So it goes on and it goes on and um, it got to be, uh, let's see, uh, uh, update your map. Okay, so uh, during the French and Indian War. Okay, so now the French and Indian War is going on, um, and they they drew up new maps that always indicated that the Virginia border was east of the forks of the Ohio. That placed the Ohio Company's fort later, later Fort uh, Oh, I never can say this right. Duquesne, You know the French fort, Fort Pitt, and finally Pittsburgh in Virginia. So we're looking at Pittsburgh, which, you know, now Pennsylvania, but um, at the time it was in Virginia. <sighs> and then Patrick Henry, the father of Patrick Henry, um, had produced a map in 1770 repeating this claim from Virginia. And, but in England, John Mitchell produced a different map to display the English claims on the North American continent. It too identified the lands west of Pennsylvania as Virginia. So it supposedly showed um, that the lands west of the Mississippi River, uh, the Virginia owned these lands between the 36 uh, degree 30 parallel of, of latitude and the 40 degree parallel. See, this is I, I never I never studied much about parallels and latitudes and whatnot. So you know, reading this is. Um, I have to look at the maps and everything to really understand it. I know other people can just listen to that and they know exactly what you know it means, but this is not one of my forte's. Um, so it goes on, and and they went back and forth with the map, um, and Mitchell was disagreeing with the maps produced by the Virginians and placed the forks of the Ohio within the boundaries of Pennsylvania. So in the 1750s, now it's going back to Pennsylvania, and it's not Virginian. And the Virginians claim to have purchased um, 
the Iroquois rights in the 1744 Treaty of Lancaster in the 1750s, colonial officials in Williamsburg were willing to assert Virginia's ownership through multiple claims, including right of conquest, initial settlement, and royal grants. The French, of course, did not feel obliged to honor any English claims, and French military expansion into the Ohio River Valley would block the claims of any English colony to the land. French occupation, starting with ports and traders and ultimately settlers, would ensure continued French control over the trade with the Native Americans west of the Alleghenies. Now, the pacifist Quakers in the Pennsylvania legislature were unwilling to raise taxes to confront and potentially fight the French. In contrast, the Virginians were willing to assert their land claims and aggressive in their behavior towards the French. And in late 1753, Governor Dinwiddie sent an emissary in the middle of the winter to tell the French to abandon their plans to build a string of new ports from Lake Erie down into the Ohio River Valley. And this was um, George Washington. Uh, and he carried a specific message from Governor Dinwiddie to the French while they were camped at Fort LeBouf, south of Lake Erie. And uh, he was well treated by the French officers there, led by Le Gardier de St. Pierre. The French officials camped in the middle of nowhere during the cold winter must have been entertained by the company of a young, smart, well-spoken representative from Williamsburg. But he had no uh, military force with him and no leverage. And they, the French sought to recruit his Native American allies and may have succeeded in getting one to try to murder Washington during the trip home. The Virginia protest failed to convince the French. So um, they continued to politely reject all the English claims, and they continued to implement their, uh, their building of the force. And then French and Indian War, and we know how that came. Um, in 1758, the British under John Forbes finally captured Fort Duquesne, I believe is how you say it, and renamed it Fort Pitt. Much to the frustration of the Ohio Company and other land speculators in Virginia, Forbes' army in 1758 had been organized in Pennsylvania. It marched westward across the colony, established good roads that connected Philadelphia to the Ohio River, and created a shorter, better road than the trail used by General Braddock on his expedition from Virginia. Um, so this new road between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh undercut the Virginia colony's economic links up the Potomac River to the Ohio. And, uh, you know, as they say, possession is 99% of the law. Um, so it turns out that Virginia's western boundary was reduced in the 1763 Treaty of Paris at the end of the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War. The French surrendered their claims to land on the North American continent. The Mississippi River was defined as the western edge of Virginia and the passage pacifist Quakers who had controlled Pennsylvania's governor, government were replaced by assertive colonial leaders who ensured their boundaries were established fairly. Pennsylvania and Maryland officials resolved their disputed boundaries through a 1763-67 survey by two Englishmen, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. The line they drew became the basis for locating the southern boundary of Pennsylvania and also defined the Pennsylvania-Virginia boundary west of Maryland. Um, let's see. Uh, 
So in 64, they defined the western border of Delaware, separating it from Maryland. And in 65, the two surveyors returned to the postmark west and began to pull the 66-foot chain to define more of the west line. When they reached North Mountain at modern Hancock, they determined that Maryland would be two miles wide at that point. In 66, they surveyed east from the postmark west to the Delaware River and Penn's charter defined the western edge of the colony to be five degrees west of the eastern edge, and that point on the Delaware River ultimately determined the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania, separating it from Virginia. Mason and Dixon, which is how you get the Mason-Dixon line, this is these two men, these surveyors, and that's why there's this Mason and Dixon line. They... Uh, uh, let's see, they finished surveying the west line in 67 and soon reached a point due north of the headwaters of the Potomac River, and they defined the Pennsylvania-Maryland border. So, um, they stopped, let's see, um, the, the surveyors were 233 miles west of the point of beginning. Dunkirk Creek is 33 miles west of the Maryland border and 22 miles east of the point that is now the southwestern edge of Pennsylvania. Um, and they use mounds of earth rather than stone monuments to mark the boundary. And it just goes on, and it has wonderful maps. You can see what they were doing. They uh, they have their map and the longitude and latitude, and, um, and it goes on. You know, Virginia officials continue to assert their land claims. Pennsylvania claimed the same area as Virginia, and in 73 created Westmoreland County in the southwestern corner of Pennsylvania. Um, so it went on to, I'm, I'm trying to go down here, um, to the Well, I think they got the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can see that it was, uh, um, God, it just goes on and on. I mean, it's, we're still not done yet. They, they, they had to, uh, it was in 79. And so... It was basically by the end of the war when we became, you know, the United States that they finally got it resolved. Well, the reason we're bringing this up is because this is a really highly contested area, and this is where our family is going to be. So they're already going into an area that's, um, uh, well, the Indians want it back. The Pennsylvania wants it. Virginia wants it. I mean, it wasn't a stable area to begin with. No. And then you had King George the Third, or King George the Second, as well as King George the Third, who who you know made it uh, against the crown to to move west of the Alleghenies because of the Indian treaties. Right, and this 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 is going to go to the whole era, you know, with the whole Revolutionary War, and when we get into the uh, Corbley family, um, not only what reasons why they left um, where they were and went out to this, you know, this is a wild place, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> like you know, Philadelphia proper. I mean, oh no, it, what, it was it was wild land. I mean, they went out there. And they called it tomahawking the land, where you know they had they they would put in they would take the land and then they would tomahawk the area as so that people would know and you know by tomahawking it meant cutting down the trees 
that so people would know that it was it was um settled. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what my uh, idiot neighbor threatened to do with us. Okay, so now we know where we are and I'm going to start to read about the Corbley family. And, of course, I'm going to have my co-host kind of put it all together because what you, what you do is putting what we, you gave me together, okay? Yes. Okay. More often than not, the horrific realities of warfare, and this is from allthingsliberty.com, are shielded by bland accounts and cold statistics. When it comes to the Revolutionary War, affairs on the frontier suffer egregiously in that regard, and the grim cost of the conflict is often overshadowed, overshadowed by the epic sweep of affairs on the eastern seaboard. And that's another reason that we wanted to get this show in, because everything does center on the seaboard, but the war was all over the colonies. Wherever you were, you were going to be at war with something or somebody. But in the hinterlands of the West, the war was very personal and brutal affair, which left seared memories and scarred lives on both sides of the conflict. Those horrors are tragically humanized by the experiences of a single little girl from Western Pennsylvania, seven-year-old Delilah Corbley. Now, I am going to talk about her father first uh, because we have to give some context into how they ended up where they were at the time they were there. Um, And it has to do with him because he decided to choose a life of ministry. So, um, let's see. All right. Um, No, I don't want that one. I want this one. Um, Where it becomes the priest. As it, I just had it, Deb. (laughs) I know. Here we go. 32 windows open and. Uh-huh. You push the wrong I, button and things disappear. Um, um, come on. Okay, here it is. John Corbley was born in Ireland in 1733. He had come to Pennsylvania as an indentured servant at age 14, agreeing to serve the man who paid his passage for seven years. After completion of his indenture, he moved down the Great Valley to Virginia, where he converted to the emerging emerging Baptist faith. Arrested and jailed with other Baptists who refused to pay tithes to the colonies established at Angleton Church, Corby preached from his jail cell. In 1771, he returned to Pennsylvania, founded the Goshen Baptist Church, now known as the Corbley Church at a Guard Fort, which I couldn't, we couldn't find anything about Guard Fort, so we're not even going to go there, and established more than 30 churches in western Pennsylvania. Founded the Ohio and West Virginia. So they founded um, 30 churches in western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West uh, Virginia. 
Corbley's story encapsulates much of the story of frontier Pennsylvania. Like many of its settlers, he was of Scots-Irish descent, and like many of the immigrants from Europe, most of them young and single, he did not come to America as a free man. And we are going to highlight this, ladies and gentlemen, because the first slaves that were brought here were indentured servants, and they were all white, and they were mostly Irish. When the French and Indian War threatened the Pennsylvania frontier, he joined the southward migrant to the Valley of Virginia, and there, like many others, he was attracted to the Baptists. This new face had a special appeal on the frontier, for Anglican ministers rarely visited the backcountry, and the hierarchical Anglican church governed, which is the Church of England, governed by local vestries of wealthy men, had little appeal to subsistence farmers in remote regions. First rising to prominence during the Great Awakening in, of the 1740s, insured Baptist ministers who needed neither a formal education nor ordination circulated freely on the frontier and in more settled regions, and won converts among people who did not believe that high social standing increases one's Christian piety. Corbley became such a preacher, and it's very important that we know this, because this is, him being a preacher is pitiful, pitiful to the massacre. So I'm not going to keep going, because it just tells about the, their uh, murder, and we're going to get into it later. How important, and do you have the Baptist up, was the Baptist, and, and everyone doesn't understand this. Look, first there was the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church was the first church, okay? It was the first religion, Christian religion, was Catholicism. Everything else broke off from that. And the, uh, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and Deborah said this many, many times, was created by a king. Okay, the Lutheran Church is the only Christian church that broke away from the Catholic religion, and the only reason I know this is because my husband was a Catholic monk. Was the only is the only religion that can consecrate the host, um, the body of Jesus Christ and the wine. That was given over. That was given to Lutheran. That right was given to Lutheran by the Pope, the then Pope when Lutheran broke off. All the other ones, the Catholic Church doesn't recognize. They still do have the ceremony, but they don't recognize it. So Baptist was one of them that broke off as well. And we've already talked about there's Presbyterian was here, Lutherans were here, Baptists were here. These are very old religions. They're not new. And I'm tired of people equating them with this new movement that's this creepy, and I've been to a couple, my daughter was involved in this new mega churches. They're creepy. I'm sorry. I've, I've been to their ceremonies. They're very creepy. Also, these other religions, including the Baptist religion, does not believe in baptism until you are able to read, write, you are in your teenage years, which is also a, a pretense of the Jewish faith. That's why they have the bar mitzvahs, because then they acknowledge that God acknowledges you, that you acknowledge God, and you, you're old enough to read the Torah and the whole bit. The Baptist Church is the same way. They baptize adults. The Catholic Church doesn't believe, believes that if you do not baptize the baby after it's born, its soul will not be recognized by God. I know I'm getting into the weeds, but this is going to explain some of the, the ways that this was the Baptist religion was, uh, they liked it. Right? It wasn't as rigid. Well, you're going to get into it, but did I, did I get into the weeds? 
Well, yeah, some, but, you know, the the, the biggest point with the Baptist, um, and I, in researching the Baptist um, history, I mean, my mom was Baptist. She was raised Baptist. And um, it was an offshoot from the pure, the Congregationalists. If you know anything about the Congregationalists, you know, Massachusetts, the Puritans, the Congregationalists, and, and it was an offshoot. It came out of that. But there, it, even within the Baptist community, there, it, there is um, dissension about the source of the Baptist. When did the Baptist, you know, uh, religion start? <laughs> Some have it goes way, I mean, it was, it was from Jesus' time because, you know, John the Baptist, so, because they believe in immersion baptism. You don't just sprinkle on the forehead. You, you go all the way in um, to the water. So that was the difference between... Uh, because the Anglican Church was was basically Catholic light, they just weren't attached to to Rome. Uh, King Henry made sure, you know, that he didn't have to uh, listen to the or answer to the Pope for anything. So he started his own church. But he was Catholic when he started out. So the Anglican Church was very very similar. I mean, he didn't get rid of a lot of the Catholic ways of doing things. Well, you know, and you bring up a very good point of, of the actual baptism of being completely immersed in water. That would appeal to people that lived in the middle of nowhere and next to, they had streams and rivers everywhere. Well, yeah. I mean, it was just, that that was, um, but there's three different kinds of Baptists, which I found out. And there's the particular Baptists who were basically the ones that came here. There were the Anabaptists, and they were basically Mennonites. So they weren't even, the Baptists, the particular Baptists didn't see them as being really Baptists. They were different. And then there was the the original source Baptists who believed that, you know, they came from Jerusalem. So it, it was fascinating reading all the different um, articles that I read just to find something I could, you know, consolidate it here because you can get into the talk about weed. I mean, oh, there's wonderful papers on it um, that you can find on, on the Internet if you want to delve more fully into the, uh, you know, what's the Baptist? <laughs> so anyways, uh, of course, the Baptist, as well as the Puritans, as well as the Calvinists, as well as the Lutherans, as well as anybody who disagrees with the Catholic Church. And they were called, now this, you wanted to know the meaning of, before I get into the history of the Baptists, um, you wanted to know the schismatic doctrine. That schismatic means dissenter. So, um, Martin Luther who who was you know the first uh, the, the founder of, basically of the Protestant Reformation? Um, he was he was known as uh, a schismatic because um, he was a dissenter from Rome, and then it went down. You know, okay, then you have the Anglican Church, and anyone who didn't 
fall into the Anglican community were dissenters and heretics, and a lot of them were burned at the stake um, because of it. A lot of people were killed, and, uh, you know, the whole history over in Europe was pretty ugly when it came to dissenting, which is why a lot of these... uh, a lot of these people came here, like the Quakers, the Mennonites, the Moravians, the um, Baptists. The you want to come in? I, just, I had a, my my son's do- or son-in-law's dog wants to be in with me, and since I miss my critter, she can come in anytime she wants. Um, but getting back to Baptists, so it really was a time of of great upheaval in the Western world, in the religious community. And, of course, religion religion was, it, it wasn't a thing you did on Sunday. It was every day. You lived it. You did everything for God. I mean, that's how you lived your life, if you were, you know, devout and all that. Um, so, anyways, getting to the Baptist, let me, um, ah, you know, I think you know. I think that we really explained it a lot because this is not it, it. Yeah, I think we did good. Okay. Okay, I want to get back to him. Yeah. Their story. Okay. Um. Here we go. Um. Back to all things liberty. Her story would likely have been lost to history if not been for Reverend William Rogers, a Philadelphia minister who contacted the Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser in 1785. Rogers submitted a letter from fellow Baptist minister John Corbley, whose family had experienced nightmarish, a nightmarish ordeal three years earlier. By Rogers' reckoning, such accounts needed to be recorded so that our posterity may not be ignorant of what their ancestors underwent when at the trying period of the revolution. In the aftermath of the conflict, it was likewise obvious that Rogers harbored no small resentment toward the British, who he thought basically chose to encourage, patronize, and reward their most faithful and beloved allies, the savages of the wilderness. Now, I'm going to put it into perspective. I need you to get up where uh, Pennsylvania is. Okay. Uh, hold on. I'm, i got to get to it first. Uh, for Western Pennsylvania settlers, all other issues were secondary to the Indian War. Frontier whites lived in constant fear of the threat posed by hostile Native Americans. I'm never going to call them that, ladies and gentlemen. They're Indians or Natives. The federal government's half-hearted attempt to quell the Indian threat in the failed expeditions of General Joshua Harmon, and this is very important, too. They basically – they okay, anyway, let me go on. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Of General Jocelyn Harmon in 1790 and General Arthur St. Clair in 1791 only reinforced their disdain for the federal government. Not surprisingly, the connection between Indian depredations and the federal tax on whiskey being obvious to them. And this is there. I've got to get into the whiskey rebellion, which I didn't want to get into. I'm not going to because this is way past the revolution. But they were pretty much left to themselves, and that's what I wanted to bring out. And they wanted to be left to themselves because, as we said earlier, 
they didn't want all the tra- they liked the Baptists. They didn't want all the trappings of the Anglican um, faith. They were taxed heavily under this um, when they where they lived. So they well, that's why they, that's the main reason that they got away because um, they and I think this is going to say okay okay here we go. Since the outbreak of hostilities in the spring of 1775, the western frontiers of Pennsylvania and Virginia had, somewhat surprisingly, escaped all-out war. Clearly frustrated by the course of the conflict and determined to throw all available means at the rebels, American Secretary Lord George Germain changed all of that early in 1777. In written orders for British officers at Detroit, German observed that it is His Majesty's resolution that most vigorous efforts should be made and every means employed that Providence has put into His Majesty's hands for crushing the rebellion. It was high-flown language which would contribute to widespread suffering in American settlements and native villages across the frontier. Germain was specifically authorizing the arming of Indian allies because a number of the northwestern tribes, the Chippewa, Wyandat, Shawnee, Seneca, Delaware, and Potawatomi, possessed an inclination for war. Now, all of those tribes, they targeted them because they possessed an inclination for what? War. They were not peaceful, loving Indians that milked cows and made book maize. And, no. Possessed an inclination for war. And this is one of the myths we're going to bust amongst and many other tonight, Deb, right? We're going for it. Yep. Germain ordered that they be supplied for making a diversion and exciting an alarm upon the frontiers of Virginia and Pennsylvania. It would be best, Germain instructed, for Indian war parties to have a proper white officer placed at their head in order to protect loyalist civilians, or, as he put it, to restrain them from committing violence on the well-affected and inoffensive inhabitants. At least in his official orders, Germain expressed no similar concern for rebel civilians. For gentlemen officers steeped in the conventions of European warfare, the ugly realities of frontier bushfighting constituted a double-edged sword that could nettle the conscience. Vincennes Lieutenant Governor Edward Abbott although he had previously offered to raise Indian war parties to the crown standard, later experienced second thoughts. Although greatly underestimating the tribe's ability to confront conventional forces in pitched battle, he nonetheless observed that the norm for frontier warfare constituted small-scale strikes against civilians. In a letter to Sir George Guy Carleton, Abbott particularly lamented the plight of loyalist families and observed, that it is not people in arms that Indians will ever daringly attack, but the poor, inoffensive families who fly the deserts to be out of trouble and who are inhumanly butchered, sparing neither women or children. Don't you just love these these wonderful Indians, Deb? Well, yeah. I, and the thing is, is these tribes, um, I mean, there were the peaceful tribes. They, they, but unfortunately, this, these uh the warlike tribes, or the warring tribes, which these were, um, basically removed the the more peaceful, the non-warring tribes 
that lived in the area. I mean, by the time this white settlers were coming into this area, the frontier, the Iroquois, the league, you know, the Iroquois nations, five nations, had removed everybody out of, you know, all the other Indians. They either killed or, or you know, got them to run to someplace else. You know, they came in, they wanted, they took. And, and if you, you know, they took slaves too. They had slaves. So, however, one family's tragic story, um, hold on, common thought. Where did I go? I, oh, I went down too far. <laughs> When the Continental Congress began receiving reports of a complete destabilization of the frontier over the summer of 1777, they were aghast at the depredations perpetrated, quote, by some savage tribes of the Indians, wherein a number of helpless people have been cruelly massacred and the peaceable inhabitants driven from their homes and reduced to great distress. The Western War sparked during the summer of 1777 would continue through the end of the Revolution and beyond. It was a conflict characterized by exceedingly brutal acts of revenge and reprisal in which neither side would maintain clean hands. The revolution may have begun in the East over grand themes of liberty, but on the far reaches of the Western frontier, the war could fall with an irrevocable tragedy on the lives of common settlers. Due to a woeful lack of primary documents, most casualties of the war in the West remain nameless, faceless victims. However, one family's tragic story, that of Reverend Don Corbley, can be told in frightening detail. By profession, Corbley was a regular Baptist minister and farmer. After initially settling in Virginia, Corbley underwent a conversion to evangelical Christianity of the nonconformist evangelical stripe when he became Baptist. Because an interent preacher and became an interent preacher and quickly ran afoul of Virginia's Anglican establishment. On July of 1768, he was jailed in Culpeper along with three other men as vagrants and interned persons for assembling themselves unlawfully and for teaching and preaching, this is what she's looked up for me, um, schismatic doctrine. And again, freedom of a religion, not freedom from religion. We didn't have any religious freedoms, ladies and gentlemen. Stop trying to take them away from us. This infuriates me. By 1777, Corbley was on the frontier of modern-day Pennsylvania, continuing to plant churches and farming his own ground on Whiteley Creek, just north of the stockade of, of Durrett's Fort. The widowed Corbley, he was a widow, who had fathered four children with his first wife, married Elizabeth Tyler about 1773. Over the following decade, five more children followed. Settler John Crawford recalled Corbley as thoroughly weak in his political sentiments. I mean, he was a patriot. His preaching was attended by large assemblies, claimed Crawford. Many would come 10 miles to hear him. He represented our cause as the cause of heaven. And again, we have said this all the time. Um, the, the, men of the, the men of the cloth were for liberty. They were very outspoken. They raised little militias all over the colonies. They were not, they were not told by the government that they could act politically. To them, that was their job, to, to mentor their flock. We are in 
dire straits. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. This is going to get into the massacre, so I don't want to get it, but I do want to say the ages of these children because it's important. Um, Mrs. Corby led the rest of the family. They're going to services where he's going to preach. And he was very in, he was a very famous preacher, which, of course, nobody talks about because they, all, they talk about his famous prog creatures. Prog. Um, prog, prog. Anyway, uh, but this is important. So Mrs. Colby led the rest of the family. In her arms was infant Nancy, not a year old. Close in tow were the remainder of Corbley's minor children, Delilah, just shy of her eighth birthday, Elizabeth, seven, Isaiah, six, and Mary Catherine, about two years old. And we'll find out later his other son from his first marriage had, was not in this at all. He had gone on ahead, and we'll, we'll highlight that as well, because this is, ladies and gentlemen, hold on to your hats. This is really, really, really grotesque. But now, I want to get into the indentured servants um, if we have time at the end, and I don't even care where Pennsylvania is anymore, or is it very important? No, it's just, you know, the western end of uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Because I do, when we're going to, we have to get into the scalping <laughs> details. And, um, oh, my God. Okay, so this is what happened to the family, okay? On Sunday morning, May 12, 1782, Corbley headed out for services at his primary congregation at Goshen Meeting House, which is about a mile's walk from the family home. Now, um, in another account of this, it says his wife forgot his Bible at the house. So he went back to the house to get the Bible, and he told them to continue on. So this is why Corbley was meditating, as he said, on his sermon for the day and walked about 200 yards behind the rest of his family. Before the family reached the meeting house, Bedlam erupted. An Indian war party, which had been concealed in the forest, burst from cover and rushed Mrs. Corbley and her children. Now, I'm going to go to another um, uh, recount of this because it says right here, the Corbley family lives one mile north of Garrett's Fort in southwest Pennsylvania at the John Corbley Farm. The massacre occurred on a Sunday morning. The Corbley family had left their home and were on their way to worship which we already said. And this is where they said that, that Mrs. Corbley did not bring the Bible who went back. A party of Indians were on Indian Point, which is all, this is also important because this gets, how did they find this family? Well, they were on Indian Point, an elevation of land from which they could see John Corbley's cabin. So they've been casing this place quite a while. The Indians descended the hill, crossed Whiteley Creek, and filed up a ravine to the place so they knew what they were going to do. They knew how they were going to do this. Again, this was a planned massacre, which makes my skin crawl because I live in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know, Deb, you know that feeling, right? Yeah. Um, and there's no cops going to come up here. <laughs> Forget it. About 49 rods north of the present John Cordley Memorial Baptist Church where the help, helpless family was massacred. So, 
they were up on a, a point. They were looking down at this family. They were watching their movement, probably for a couple of days. And this is why everybody tells us, well, people that know good self-defense, don't, you don't have a regular routine. If you have a regular routine, people can follow it. And that's very important. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Oh, yeah. You know, that's why I go into town on totally different days. Unfortunately, the thing that I buy in town is a regular routine, which I hate. But I go at different times of the day, different days of the month. I mean, they're never going to know. They might know that I'm going to be going to these places, but they never know when I'm going. So they can't track me that way. Um, but it's very important. So these Indians were actually watching them. Um, but let me get back to the her in the front here. Okay. So um, he was going 200 yards behind them, but doesn't say in this one, but the other account did. Um, so then the Indian War Party, which had been concealed in the forest, burst from cover and rushed Mrs. Corbley and the children. Now, on top of that, Deb, not only did they have to go single file through a ravine, and I don't know if people know what a ravine, we call them gulches here. Um, uh, they had to cross a river. I mean, these were really determined monsters. <laughs> Um, for no for no reason. These, fam these, these families out here on the uh, frontier, which I had explained before, they weren't soldiers. They weren't even militia. They weren't involved actively in the war. No, but the British wanted, you know, them to, that this was all ordered by the British. They wanted to take them out. They didn't want them there. Well, they didn't want, I could understand they didn't want anybody at their back while they were fighting on the seaboard. But this was also to infer terror. This was terror tactics. Yeah. It was, it was the British attitude that we will crush the rebels wherever they are. And a lot of the people that went to the frontier, you know, they were, they were, uh, they didn't really want any, you know, they, it, they just wanted to live their life and worship as they pleased. A lot of them came over, and it was the only chance they could have of having their own land. Um, and they just wanted to be left alone. We're going to build a community. That's all we really care about. And, and so that was their attitude. So they weren't really involved in the war. Um, you know, many of them did go and fight for the uh, Continental Army, um, but they were just basically just wanting to live their lives, and it was a different culture. This is one thing that, that will be brought up, is that the frontier was an entirely different culture than that of the eastern seaboard uh, for many reasons. Most of it, uh, their attitudes, where they came from, why they were there, and the fact that uh, they weren't part of the the Eastern Seaboard aristocracy, so it was a whole different way of thinking, living, and being than it was on the Eastern Seaboard colonies. So you have these people out there, but the British didn't care. The British they were they were colonists, and of course the British you know really had a a second-rate opinion of the colonists to begin with. They were lesser than. And if they were uh, Whigs, you know, if they, they were the Patriots, 
or they didn't call them patriots, they called them rebels, uh, against the king, then they were, you know, they were targets. So they sent the Indians in to do their dirty work. And they had no problem doing it. No, because these, you know, the settlers were encroaching upon the lands they had stolen from other people. Right. These were warring tribes. Yeah. They probably yeah, stole that land that they were on from other Indians. Yeah. No, they had cleared out the whole region, you know, before the, the people started, you know, going into the settling on the frontier. They had cleaned out the whole area of the original, well, are there any original tribes? I mean, my God, the, the Native Americans came across the Bering Strait about ten thousands of years ago. So, when they, you say original, well, when when are you starting your history? Because we all came from somewhere, you know. Um, we didn't sprout out of the ground. So, <laughs> good point. <laughs> you know. So if you want to, you know, talk reparations, well, gee, we have to go just keep going back because people kept taking the land from the people that were already there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man came. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to read this version, and then I'm going to read the version from John Corbley's own mouth. And then, hold on to your hats, we're going to get into scalping. And then I have another article that Deb had found for us because she's my wonderful researcher that actually tells about the girls and what happened to them and their, and her bro- and their brother because some of the children did survive. Okay, so uh, let's see. Um, the pastor immediately, but before the family reached the meeting house, Bedlam erupted. An Indian war party, which had been concealed in the forest, burst from cover and rushed Mrs. Corbley and the children. The pastor, immediately realizing what was happening, ran through the forest, vainly hunting for a club, while he listened to the frightful shrieks of my dear family. This is so horrible. When he was about 40 yards from the scene of the attack, and by the way, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Muslims have no problem doing this either, the whole family. When he was about 40 yards from the scene of the attack, Mrs. Corbley caught a glimpse of him, and no doubt sensing the utter hopelessness of the situation, frantically shouted for her husband to make his escape. A warrior immediately saw Corbley and raised his piece to take aim, meaning a gun, long arm. But Corbley sprinted off before he could fire. The Indians set out in pursuit, but quickly gave up the chase and returned to the scene of the ambush. By his later description of events, it seemed likely that Corbley, though out of range, was nonetheless close enough to hear some of the horrifying events that followed. It was over a, ver- a few terrifying minutes. Now, this is why we talk about having a gun. We always, I, Brian and I always give an analogy, and this is, it goes along with these terrifying minutes. Sit in front of an analog clock for one minute and see how long it is. I had to take pulses for one minute. It's a very long time. You do not want to be unarmed for a few minutes when you're in this kind of a situation. We'll stop it with the gun control. When the attack began, seven-year-old Delilah scampered, apparently undetected, about 20 yards into the forest and hid in a tree where she saw the whole proceeding. 
As she watched, the war party wasted little time. The infant Nancy was jerked from her mother's arms, killed, and scalped, as was the toddler Mary Catherine. Five-year-old Isaiah was scalped and received a tomahawk blow to the head. Seven-year-old Elizabeth was scalped and left for dead. The warriors had slightly more trouble with Mrs. Corbley. After shouting warnings to her husband, she sustained repeated tomahawk blows but remained on her feet. When the warrior who had pursued Corbley returned to the scene, he leveled his piece and shot her dead. She was scalped with the rest. When she finally heard her family scream subside, Delilah, assuming that the Indians had fled the scene, got up and deliberately crept out from the hollow trunk. She was tragically mistaken. One of the warriors noticed her, quickly ran her down, knocked her to the ground, and scalped her. Pastor Corbley thought the entire affair lasted no more than 10 minutes. So um, I'm going to go to his recount quickly. What did I do with it? What did I do with it? Okay. Um, Okay. The following are the particulars of the destruction of my unfortunate family by the savages on the 10th day of May, last 1791. Being my appointment to preach at one of the meeting houses about a mile from my dwelling house, I set out with my loving wife and five children for public worship, not suspecting any danger. I walked behind a few rods with my Bible in my hand, meditating. As I was thus employed on a sudden on a sudden, I was greatly alarmed by the frightful shrieks of my dear family before me. I immediately ran to their relief with all possible speed, vainly hunting a club as I ran. When, within a few yards of them, my poor wife, observing me, cried out to me to make my escape. At this instant, an Indian ran up to shoot me. I had to strip and, by so doing, ran, outran him. My wife had an infant in her arms, which the Indians killed and scalped, after which they struck my wife several times, but not bringing her to the ground. The Indians who attempted to shoot me approached her and shot her through the body, after which they scalped her. My little son, about six years old, they dispatched by sinking their hatchet into his brain. My little daughter, four years old, they in like manner tomahawked and scalped. My elder daughter, attempting an escape by concealing herself in a hollow tree about six rods from the fatal scene of action, observing the Indians retiring, she supposed she deliberately crept out from the place of her concealment when one of the Indians, who yet remained on the ground espying her, ran up to her with his tomahawk, knocked her down, and scalped her. But blessed be God, she yet survives, as does there her little sister, whom the savages in like manner tomahawk and scalp. They are mangled to a shocking degree, but the doctors think there are some hope of their recovery. When I suppose the Indians gone, I returned to see what had become of my unfortunate family, whom also I found in the situation above described. No one, my dear friend, can form a true conception of my feelings at this moment. A view of a crime so shocking to humanity quite overcame me. I fainted and was unconsciously borne off by a friend who at that moment arrived to my relief. Thus, my dear sir, I have given you a faithful, though short narrative of the fatal catastrophe amidst 
which my life is spared, but for what purpose? The great Jehovah knows best. Oh, may I spend it to the praise and glory of his grace, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. The government of the world and its church are in his hands. I conclude with wishing you every blessing and subscribe myself, your affectionate, though afflicted friend and unworthy brother, in the gospel of ministry, the, the gospel ministry, John Corbley. Now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell you what, how, what happened to them. But his one son did get away. And I'm going to recount that. And then um, the people from the fort did come. But, and that, that's on, in the other article. So here, Reverend Corbley does not mention the name of John Corbley Jr., son of his first wife, in his letter to William Rogers, which I just read. The traditional story of John Jr.'s escape from the Indians has been handed down from generation to generation. John Jr., accompanied by his dog, had probably preceded the family to the place of worship because he was the oldest and was somewhere near the scene of the massacre when his presence was observed by an Indian who gave chase as John ran in the direction of the fort. The following narration is from papers of the late Corbley Gerard. Fortunately, the boy's faithful dog, and this struck me in my heart because I know my sorcerer, she has already done this for me. Fortunately, the boy's protected me. Fortunately, the boy's faithful dog, a large one, was with him that morning and in his race for life also became an attacking party. So fiercely did the dog assail the Indian's leg and impede his progress that the fleet-footed boy made his escape to the fort. This is in the story of his escapes so often related by his son who grew to manhood and who also became a Baptist minister. The lives of John Corbley and John Jr. were no doubt saved by the quick action of the men in the fort who hastened on horseback to the scene of the massacre as soon as the first screams were heard. Now, not only they were a mile away, and this is, I, I know because I, I, both you and I live in the mountain, and we know you can hear things in the mountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> far, yeah. far away. You can hear things really far away. So not only is he hearing them, but the, the people in the fort are hearing these horrific screams. While some of the men who went out brought members of the Corbley family to the fort, others followed the savages as far as the Ohio River. When the Indians crossed into hostile territory, it was thought best not to pursue them further. This closes the story of the Corbley's massacre, which was one of the most brutal ever perpetrated in this region, and of which Mr. Evans writes, viewed in all its bearings, it is unsurpassed in enormity by any in the annals of border life. It is not an incident of traditionary fame, merely, but is one that has long since passed into history and is as familiar to the readers of the state as almost any other historic event. After the Revolutionary War, with the exception of two short public services, contemporary, contemporary in his religious work, John Corby devoted all his time to the ministry. Now, this last one I'm going to go before I thought this is the hard part of the story. No, Deb, you have the hard part of the story. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, see. Uh, Okay, so he fainted. While the Indian party sped off to the west, a pursuit party was organized at Garage Fort 
The men followed the Indians' trail for some time, but eventually gave up. It was never recorded that the tribe was thought to have been involved in the attack or how many warriors participated. Back at Garrett's Fort, a devastated John Corbley struggled to regain his senses. Would to God I had died for them, he cried out. Would to God had I died with them. Amazingly, both Delilah and Elizabeth survived the incident. Delilah had suffered a scalping to the crown of her head, but was otherwise unhurt. Elizabeth's wound was simply ghastly. Corbley later explained that a piece of her skull had been cut away during the attack, and not more than one inch round, either of flesh or skin, remained on her head. Although it is not terribly uncommon for a scalping victim to survive such an injury, the medical procedures needed to treat such a wound would have been simply terrifying for little girls, not yet 10 years old. And we're going to get into um, uh, the scalping and the um, treatment. Although we don't know how, um, although, although we don't know for certain what treatment the girls were forced to endure, it was generally customary to treat a scalp wound by boring a number of small holes and I'll, get, I'll let Deb get into that. In a letter to William Rogers three years later after the attack, Corbley expressed thankfulness that Delilah and Elizabeth had been miraculously preserved, but indicated that he was full of anxiety over their future. I am yet in hopes of seeing the cure, them cured, he wrote. They still, blessed be God, retain their senses, notwithstanding the painful operations they have already and must yet pass through. Paying for the medical treatment, Corbley explained, had almost ruined him financially. All right, so you're up, Deb. All right. Another this time. is so horrible. This is just so horrible. And, and and before you go on, I just think about all of the probs that are praying that we embrace Islam and Muslims and Indians. Yeah, no. Um, if if you're not horrified by this, you know, <laughs> definitely part of the problem. Um, okay. This is also from the Journal of the American Revolution, allthingsliberty.com, which is like one of my favorite sites. And it's How to Treat a Scalped Head by Sue T. Harrington. And it's uh, from May 14, 2013. So if you want to, you know, find it later on, you just go over to allthingsliberty.com, put in scalped head, and it's just right up. When one thinks of injuries received in battle during the Revolutionary War, wounds from gunshots, bayonets, and swords come to mind. A far less Common. Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I can go here. There we go. It's not little children. It's little critters. Um. Okay. Getting back to it. A far less common wound was that of a scalping victim. In most cases, the scalping victim was already dead or soon would be dead when the scalping took place. There were, however, instances where a person was scalped and either was not otherwise wounded or the wound was not mortal. The problem then becomes how to medically treat a patient with a scalped head. And, and you know, we've gone into the uh, the medicine 
practices they had at the time, which was frightening to, you know, you didn't know which was worse, the disease or the, the treatment. And a lot of times the treatment was, but, uh, oh, yeah, so. Despite the fact that scalping had been practiced for centuries and some victims lived through their ordeal, the literature of the period is mostly silent on the techniques for treating this wound. Samuel Sharp, 1769, treatise on the operations of surgery does not mention any scalping treatment. Likewise, John Jones' plain, concise, practical remarks on the treatment of wounds and fractures, written in 1776 for the Patriot Surgeon, facing battle casualties, ignores the possibility of a live scalping victim. Dr. James Thatcher, a Continental Army surgeon, published his military journal of the American Revolution in 1823. He describes the scalping victim as one of the most remarkable occurrences which came under my observation. A Captain Gregg, while stationed at Fort Stanwix in New York, had been wounded, scalped, and left for dead, but he was not dead. He was found alive and transported to Dr. Thatcher's hospital. Dr. Thatcher described one form of the Native American scalping procedure. With a knife, they make a circular cut from the forehead, quite round, just above the ears. Then, taking hold of the skin with their teeth, they tear off the whole hairy scalp in an instant with wonderful dexterity. They not only use knives, they also use uh, reeds, which were many times even sharper than the knives that they had. To Dr. Thatcher, Captain Gregg was the most frightful spectacle. The whole of his scalp was removed. Regrettably, he does not explain the method of treatment. He only says this unfortunate man, after suffering extremely for a long time, finally recovered and appeared to be well satisfied in having his scalp restored to him, though uncovered with hair. (coughs) Excuse me. The history of treating scalping injuries is murky. In the 1600s, Augustine Bellot, a French surgeon, explained that some sort of surgery had to take place in order for the wound to heal as the skin could not regenerate on its own because the skull was very smooth. The first recorded treatment was to use a rasp to puncture the diplo and roughen the surface of the skull. The diplo, the area between two layers of compact bone containing red bone marrow had to be reached in order for new skin to grow. Once the diplo is pierced, granulation occurs, fleshy projections formed on the surface of a gaping wound. Each area of granulation produces the growth of new capillaries and forms scar tissue, thus providing the area with a rich blood supply, which ultimately produces healthy, living, proud flesh, the new scar tissue. According to Bellos, the grass method was undesirable for a number of reasons. First, the friction from scraping the rasp across hard bone produced heat and altered the formation of the skull. Further, rasping thinned the bone and was painful. Pegging or boring small holes in the skull proved to be a better treatment and also was not painful until the new scar tissue attached to the uninjured scalp. There were also cases where scalps, if immediately recovered, were replaced on the skull of the victim. These cases apparently were rare. If the scalp head was left untreated, the exposed bone would eventually become um, necrotic and separate from the healthy bone, or it could cause osteomy- oh dear, osteomyelitis. 
and inflammation of the bone and marrow. Either of these conditions. Okay, stop, 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 stop. This is where my expertise comes in. Yeah. Necrotic is means rotting skin. It's black. And yes. normally, I, I, as a nurse, my expertise was uh, cardiac wound care and respiratory care. And especially the home health nurse, uh, wounds were like our specialty. We were constantly dealing with wounds. Um, osteomyelitis is when the inside, the bone gets infected and it's usually it don't survive. It's very hard to get rid of osteomyelitis, extremely hard. And the newest wound care for really deep wounds like you're talking about is putting them in a hyperbaric chamber that they use to decompress divers. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, yeah. And fortunately, they didn't have this back then, so... Well, and I, I got to tell you, I'm very, very impressed with this, that they could actually heal these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest, the biggest problem was infection, of course, um, ulcers and things, because, or abscesses, I mean, because... They didn't have the antibiotics we have today, so you know I'm sure I'm sure there were herbs and whatnot used because you know they had their home remedies. Um, but still, yeah, I, mm-hmm, oh, I can't imagine. Oh dear. Um, so let's see. Okay. Either of these conditions would be fatal. Okay, in 1769, James Robertson saw a young South Carolinian who had been scalped in 1761. The exposed bone of his skull was perfectly bare, dry, and black. Robertson believed the man could have been successfully treated even after eight years. However, the man was not treated and died less than a year later. The bare bone of his skull had become necrotic and separated, exposing the man's brain. James Robertson was a pioneer, not a medical doctor. He founded the city of Nashville and is known as the father of Tennessee. He learned the procedure to treat scalping victims from one Dr. Patrick Vance. James Robertson's son, Felix, was a medical doctor and reported his father's experiences and treatments and remarks on the management of a scalped head published in 1806. Robertson's first experience with treating a scalping victim was in 1777. The patient was scalped so nearly the whole of his head skin. Dr. Vance was treating the man, but could not remain for a period, a prolonged period of time, so instructed Robertson in the art of skull boring. Vance demonstrated how to bore holes as the skull became black. Robertson described the method. I have found that a flat-pointed straight awl is the best instrument to bore with as the skull is thick and somewhat difficult to penetrate. When the awl is nearly through, this instrument should be bored more lightly upon. The time to quit boring is when a reddish fluid appears on the point of the awl. I bore, at first, about one inch apart, and as the flesh appears to rise in these holes, I bore a number more between the first. Besides boring holes in the skull, the wound had to be cleaned and dressed at least once a day to prevent infection, and the patient recovered from the scalping. Apparently, the success rate for this treatment was very good. The scalped head, according to Robertson, cures very slowly, and the average recovery period was two years. Remarkably, Robertson reported the hair would even grow back, although not as thickly on the new scalp. 
The patient would regain feeling once the new skin grew sufficiently to attach to the edge of the uninjured part of the original flesh remaining on the skull. This method of boring or pegging used during the colonial period continues to be practiced today. So that is how they um, took care of, if you were lucky enough to live through it, took care of being scalped. Um, scalping was a, uh, in, in fact, this it, is really funny because as I was reading about uh, all this, I came across a few articles uh, that there seems to be a um, dissension on who invented scalping. And if you go over to the American Journal, you will find an article called Who Invented Scalping that takes on um, the myth that the Europeans brought it over, that the Indians didn't scalp I would just... I was just going to say that because I was talking to Brian last night, and he's like, oh, you're going to find out that, you know, we taught them how to scout. But I'm like, oh, no, no, no. No, no, no. Um, they had been doing it a long time before we came. What we did, um, you know, sadly, uh, in, was we put bounties, well, the British, the British did this. And I guess I guess we did, too. Um you know, after the war, because uh, they were going after the settlers on the frontier, uh, they they paid for scalps of Indians. But, you know, they would pay people for the scalps of Indians so that, you know, and, of course, uh, the fact that you really can't tell the, the scalp of a man from, they wanted Indian grapes. They didn't want, they, they just wanted, you know, the warriors. But it was hard to tell the difference between a woman's scalp and a man's scalp and children's scalp. So, unfortunately, a lot of innocent Indians uh, did die from this themselves. But, you know, it's well, the, the British. Other, the, the, British. the British. I, I really, the more I learn about the British, the more I dislike their history. Well, the other thing, too, which I'm sure nobody is going to talk about, especially no some Indian or Native is going to admit this, it would also be a form of one tribe saying that they got their, the other tribe's leader. It just seems logical to me that they would take that as a trophy and bring it back to their tribe and see, said, see we won. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is this is the thing. I mean, they, they um, the, uh, the, the, the Europeans, would, you know, put heads on pikes. They would bring the head back of the the uh, the enemy leader and they would put the heads up on the pike. Thing. Well, the, Indians would, the Indians would take the scalp and bring the scalps back and they would have a staff and they would put, you know, all these scalps on and, and they were trophies. I mean, it was showing them what a great warrior they were. And, and, uh, I mean, it's just, it was just a cultural thing. Well, I mean, I mean like this is so different from what other people did. I mean, it's human nature. This is what man does to man. Well, and and you're right, because the, the Vikings did that too. They would put the, 
their conquered people's heads on spikes. Vlad the Impaler, everybody thinks that he was such an awful guy, but he was, he actually was killing Muslims. And he would put the Muslims' heads to let them know, go ahead, you keep attacking my people, I'm just going to keep killing you. Now, yeah. a, lot of the, a lot of these practices, like you had talked last night about the, the Spanish Inquisition, that started out as, as ferrying out and getting rid of Muslims. Spain was under freaking Muslim control for yeah, a long time. The Turks had come in and, um, I mean, we've been fighting the, the Muslims um, for a long time. I mean, before, I, they've been there for a long time. They went around and they you know, pillaged and plundered and raped. I mean, this is the thing that people, because we're we're here and we're sitting very nicely in this country and everybody has to find something to be upset about so they, you know, make big deals out of nothing. But before, people wanted to explore and expand. Now, some came out of curiosity and wanted to, you know, do good things, which didn't always end up being good things, but, you know. Other people wanted to conquer and take home stuff and slaves. And I think as as long as there's been two or more groups of people, this has transpired because it's human nature and we are flawed and no legislation can perfect us. No, and you bring up a good point. Everyone thinks that we're going off into the weeds, but we're not because it's always like you're saying, the, the natives were here, they came across the land bridge, they weren't the greatest people on the planet, um, the Muslims aren't the greatest people on the planet, but you know who was? Christians. Above all of these. And the natives, they, they took slaves, they conquered, they had no idea of the, they didn't get a sense of the worth of land until they started seeing us being the taking the worth of land. Before that, they didn't, there were some farmers, and we brought this up, yes, definitely. But for the most part, they were nomadic. They were more nomadic out west than, yes, east, but they were. They would follow the food, and they would fish, you know, the, the coast. But they were like, you know, well, this is, they didn't understand the worth of land until we started showing them what the land was worth because we started crops, we did um, commerce, and all this other stuff. They didn't know that before. And I'm tired of this myth, right? Yes. I mean, they were just people that had been doing what they had been doing, and, and they had their ways. And, you know, if they were on the coast, uh, like the the Pomonos in California were very peaceful. They just lived on the coast and they fished and they they uh, grew a few things that they could grow there and they took care of their families and they didn't migrate anywhere. They just stayed where they were. Um, and they didn't have many enemies at that point. Uh, so it, it was. I mean, they, the the enemies was disease and and uh, you know wild animals, but. Um, then you had other places. I mean, 
when you think about um, the Spanish coming into Mexico and taking over Mexico, how they treated the Mexican people, how they still treat the Mexican people, the you know the five families from you know those the founding families. Um, it it and then the Turks came and they they hit Spain and then Spain got rid of the Turks and they went back and and then you know they're trying to take it over again now. But the thing is, is we've all been conquered or we've all conquered and then been conquered or not. Uh, it's just the way it has been. And, I mean, you look, at, you look at England, and if you read the history of England, just the language, if you, if you look at the, the beginnings of, of the English language, you will, and there's a wonderful, wonderful show that was, may, oh gosh, many years ago, but the history of the, the English language, and it's it, it's a, a it's a, a conglomeration of all the marauding, raping, and pillaging and conquering people. We Germanic, um, the Saxons, the Normans, um, the Vikings, the North people. They have all been here, the Romans, um, you know, they've all been in, on, the, on the British Isles and they have left their mark, which is why a lot of our words, uh, you know, have French roots, German roots, Saxon roots, you know, and, and if you look at, at the, the, the origins of the English language, it's, it's fascinating. People came from all over and they went all over and they came and they took and they saw and they conquered or they, you know, settled. Just the way of the world. It doesn't mean they were bad or good. You know, some were better than others. I mean, I'm not saying that the ones that came and raped and pillaged and plundered were were good, but it was just, that was how it was. And we don't do it anymore. We don't own slaves. We don't scalp. We don't behead. We don't have, you know, honor killings. We don't mutilate a woman because so, she's such a threat to the men that, you know, we have to keep her from having pleasure for some unknown reason. We, we, don't, we don't cut off a man's hand if he steals or a woman's hand if they steal. Um, we, we don't kill the firstborn. We don't do any of that anymore. There's a reason for that. You know? We looked and went, oh, not so good. Let's not do this anymore. We grew. We matured. Other people in this God loves this planet. They have not. But it's like they say on Star Trek, you can't you can't mess with the prime directive. <laughs> okay, so I am just going to um, get a little bit more about um, this. is This is John Corbley's friend, and he has a little bit more about what happened to the girls afterwards. But we know that his son, the eldest son, is complete. There, nothing happened to him. His doggy protected him, which my doggy always protected. Yay, dog! Dogs rock. So, what's what's dog spelled backwards? 
Yeah. Anyway, so um, Reverend, uh, let's see, I don't remember, my little boy, my son, my oldest daughter, this is his, another account um, da, 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 that he might, that he was praying to God when he got back to the fort. Okay. So Reverend Corbley had hoped his wife and children might be taken prisoners and yet retrieved, because remember, he fainted. <laughs> this hope vanished. He became the victim of a temporary despair. His soul thickened within him. By the kind nursing of sympathizing friends, he was cheered at the prospect that two of his daughters might yet survive. Following description of the family after the massacre is from Evan's story. Margaret, his eldest daughter, described the scene of the massacre as witnessed by her when the killed and mangled were borne from the place of slaughter to the fort. She said it seemed only an incredibly short space of time from her hearing her step, this is Delilah, I don't know why he's calling her Margaret, from hearing her stepmother scream until one of the four people came riding in great haste, carrying the murdered women dangling across the withers of the horse. The skirt of the dress, which was a black silk one, had been cut off close to the waist and she was frightfully mangled and smeared with gore. A few minutes later, others came bearing the little ones dead and dying and suffering. Two of his daughters, Elizabeth and Delilah, gave sighs of returning life. The little boy Isaiah lived 24 hours. He revived enough, God, this is going to break my heart. He revived enough to cry piteously and scream deliriously for them to save him from his, the Indians, for them to save his life from the Indians, which Grandfather Corbley had been known to say was the severest trial of his life. Gladly would he have died to save his darling boy. Elizabeth survived until 21 years of age. Sometimes she would seem to be entirely well. Then the sore would suddenly reopen and endanger her life. She was scalped, like her skull was, parts of her skull was missing. And a thin membrane uh, healed over it. <clears throat> she was said to be a very fascinating girl, excuse me, and was betrothed to Isaiah Morris. Preparations, again, going to break my heart, preparations had been made for the nuptial occasion when very suddenly the wound broke afresh and in a few days she was a corpse. Delilah got well, lived to marry a Mr. Martin, and reared a large family somewhere in the great Miami Valley. They had 10 children. Delilah and her husband are buried in the Swanton Graveyard near Troy, Ohio. Delilah's family's physician has given a description of her scalp wound, which he said extended over the crown of her head as wide as two hands. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> the hair grew firstly around the edge of the scalp surface, and she trained it to conceal the wound. At times, it caused great pain. Notwithstanding the severity of her wound, she would live to the age of 64 years, seven months, and was the mother of eight sons and two daughters. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, there have been, you can go online and, and there are different stories of uh, survivors of scalping. Uh, and they have, they have some of them, um, there's photographs of them that happened in the 1800s. 
where they they uh, well on one they reattached the scalp through sutures and and other things. Um, but you can find that information, and and if you want to get into the whole uh, the whole argument about who invented scalping, go for it. It's really interesting on what you know the different <laughs> the different. Now go over to the American the American Journal, and uh, it, it's a very good article. It was I think I have that down here. Yeah, the oh I'm sorry, AmericanHeritage.com, and and it's uh, just put in who invented scalping. It's an excellent article. And if you want to know a little bit more about uh, the Corbley family, and it's really very interesting. Um, there's a book over at Google.com that you can uh, you can preview. Um, and I'm trying to get to the uh, to the front page here. So its name is Pastor John Corbley, and it's by Don Corbley, and it's a very good uh, very good book that uh, gives the whole you know. Um, the whole story of John and how he came over here from from uh, County Meath, Ireland, and uh, how he became a reverend, and then you know how he went into the frontier and started all these churches. He, he was, and he also served um, in the Continental Army. He uh, he was a militia man. But of course, you know, if, if you lived out in the frontier, I mean, that's really how the militias came to be, was uh, to protect the uh, the people on the frontier because, um, you know, the um, Chief of England was always so busy fighting wars that all their soldiers were used in, in wars all around the, the world, you know, between Spain and France and other places that they were fighting against. So it, it's really an interesting history. Uh, to read, and if you you want, uh, you can find the the book by Don Corbley. Very very interesting. Okay, well, Deb, since we have um, we have 15 minutes, and I like to stop at in 10 you know 10 more minutes from now. But we've done a couple of myth bustings, and I want to get to the indentured servant because we have time. Oh, right. Yes, and that's in this book. He has a very good, um, very good description uh, of 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 it all um and and how it was to be uh, an Irish person with the boot of the monarchy on your neck uh well we'll start here the future of a young commoner. Okay, in 1733, only the king's nobility could own land in the British Isles, and then only that land he saw fit to bestow upon them. So, the name Corbal or Corbali, or a similar spelling, um, not, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it was, because it does not exist. There's no existence of this name in Irish records of land ownership, so it's whom John family did not own land but rented from a nobleman. The future of a young commoner in Ireland in those days was very limited, usually a life of serfdom, trying to meet the burden of heavy taxes levied on a small plot of rented land on which he was born. 
Living was a precarious thing for the poorest of the people who usually spent their lives rarely owning their own land, which to a farmer was his only means of existence. There was a growing desire among many to own land anywhere a decent living could be earned by the sweat of the brow, even if it meant leaving Ireland. The promise of free or nearly free land was the main incentive for the early landless Irish to migrate to America. In the late 1700s in Ireland, in an attempt to stem the outflow of labor, some landowners began selling to their tenants the land on which they farmed, albeit at an exorbitant price. Some of the more industrious tenant families were able, however, after many years of saving every cent to buy their small plots of land, which were usually just large enough to grow the family's needs. Um, um, a variety of taxes were levied on even the poorest of the Irish land renters in the early 1700s. Taxes were levied on the number of windows and fireplaces in each cottage, on any owned livestock, even on each spinning loom within the household. Large families were needed to work on the family farm, but more children meant more mouths to feed and bodies to clothe. The landowner was taxed on his land, but it was the tenant who paid it in the form of higher rent. The tenant families lived meager lives with little opportunity to escape their constant indebtedness to their landowners and the demands of the king's tax collectors. Many families, unable to meet the demands placed upon them, fell into abject poverty and were minimally sustained under the provisions of the four laws. So he, uh, let's see. Uh, Let me go down here to when he leaves. Okay. The decision to leave his Irish home to go to America was difficult for John to make at such a young age. He had to consider that if he left home, he would never see his family again. He could not discuss his decision with anyone in his family, nor could he seek advice from his family or friends about how to accomplish what he was contemplating. He knew that his father would never approve of his leaving. He was needed to help work the land. For reasons of his own, John decided that his only chance to improve his lot in life was travel to the country where he would be his own master, unlike most boys in his village who were destined to live out their lives on the ranch where they were born. Um, let's see, he certainly, he went to, uh, anyway, he was uh, in Drogue, 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 Haga, Haga, I'm not sure how to say that because I know it's different than how it looks. Anyway, he was in this place, and he was hearing um, the sailor stories about America. And he did not have six pounds sterling with which to buy his passage, but it was widely known in his village that those who could not afford the passage could choose to serve as an apprentice to a foreign master who would pay his fare. During the passage, such a person would be an indentured servant, the property of the ship's captain or owner. When the ship arrived in the colonies, the captain would sell the passenger to the highest bidder, thus recouping his money and always a tidy profit as well. The indentured passenger had to agree in writing or by making the mark to work for his or her new master for a specified number of years, invariably four. In the year 1747, John left Ireland. He had fin- he finished a four-year apprenticeship in late 1751. Um, and it goes into all the, you know, how he got here. He had to go... Uh, probably on one ship into um, uh, London. I mean, he had to take a ship to get to a ship that would take him to to Philadelphia. 
that in those years, most of the English servants bound for America left England from three major ports, Bristol, Liverpool, and London, the latter being the main port of departure during the entire colonial period. John may have found his way on board the cargo ship Tanner or the Charming Molly from Drohega, Drohega to London. From there, he might have continued on one of those ships or sailed over Lydia on its regular voyage to Philadelphia. Um, and let's see. Indentured ships sometimes meant many years of misery. The indentured servant was a system for financing immigration to North America primarily during the colonial period. Sometimes ship captains kidnapped children and youth, forcing them into indentures. Shiploads of these volunteers and poor victims disembarked in colonial port towns where shipmasters sold them to plantation owners. These strangers became the servants' masters who owned them for the duration of their contract. By the early 1800s, the system had disappeared. Indentured servants often were called white slaves. Convict servants were the only group whose emigration and unpaid labors were penalties imposed for criminal behavior. Whether indentured servants posed or were voluntary or forced laborers, their indentures were temporary, unlike the Africans who enslaved for life. The, uh, the, um, the only Okay, the only written record pertaining to these transactions was the apprenticeship contract, a written agreement between the apprentice servant and his or her no owner, written on a standard form and widely used within the colonies for that specific purpose. The contract specified the number of years the servant was to serve satisfactorily and honorably for his or her new master. It specified that the master was to provide suitable clothing, housing, and sufficient needs and was not to misuse the apprentice. It detailed the severance pay to be paid upon completion of the apprenticeship, which usually included a new coat of clothing, an outfitted horse or mule, a rifle, sometimes a small plot of land, and oftentimes $50 cash. If either party to the contract failed to honor the agreement, the offended person could take the offender to court for redress. In such a case, a written record was made of the court's decision. When the servant's contractual years of servitude were finished, the contractor was usually destroyed, thus ending in any further contractual duties required by either party. Unfortunately, an unscrupulous master might sell his indentured servant to another master shortly before the apprenticeship's contractual time had been served, usually for more money than he had paid for the servant in the first place. This caused the indentured servant to have to begin serving a new master under a new contractor for the number of years specified greatly increasing the years of servitude. The servant had access to a court redress could be re obtained. Otherwise, such an unfortunate soul usually became a runaway. Uh, so this is, this is the uh, voyage to come to the New World. It probably lasted 10 weeks. And it says he, John must have had some doubts when he went below with the other passengers into the ship's dank bottom where he was find a food safe on the damp floor in which to sit and sleep. The men and boys were consigned to one end of the large common space below deck and were separated by cargo and the crew's quarters from the women, girls, and very young boys who were packed into the opposite end. The food was not like his mother's cooking. The passengers sat in their assigned spaces and ate from a container of food carried by one of the crew who doled out a ration to each person. Every meal consisted of salted fish and hard biscuit with a cup of weak tea or more often water, which as the trip progressed became brackish. There was a bucket for use as a toilet, which the young boys carried above deck to empty each morning. Bathing was restricted to one or two baths during the voyage. 
The passengers were taken in small groups above deck to washing buckets of drawn seawater. Fresh water could not be spared for a rinse. Nathan Murphy wrote about some of the worst passages that occurred during these times. During the voyages, there was, for most passengers, terrible misery, stench, fumes, horror, vomiting, many kinds of seasickness, fever, dysentery, headache, heat, constipation, boils, scurvy, cancer, mouth rot, and the like, all of which came from the old and sharply salted food and meat and from very bad foul water. Some of the weaker passengers died. Add to all of this the meager meal, hunger, thirst, frost, heat, fatness, anxiety, want, and afflictions together with other troubles. Body life was so plentiful, especially on the sick people, that they could be traced off with a knife. The passengers' misery reached its climax as the ship encountered a gale that raged for two or three nights and days. Everyone believed that the ship would go to the bottom with all the human beings on board. Very young children rarely survived such a voyage, and parents were compelled to see them suffer and die from hunger, thirst, and sickness, and then had to watch as the bodies were cast into the ocean. Okay, so let me just, we're going to the end of the show, and I just love that you found this because, um, hello, these were white people. They were white Europeans. Kaepernick. They weren't yeah. your ancestors. You're like a hundred, two hundred years removed from any of your ancestors. These were white people. These were the first slaves brought over here. These were people that went through horrific times. And again, like you said, some of them were ca- kidnapped. Stop revising history. And this is the goal of Deb and I. We are weaponizing knowledge and weaponizing history. Kaepernick. With that, yeah. it's nice to know history. It's important to know history. Um, it gives you an appreciation of what you have now. And uh, if you think that this is oppressive, this country today is, is oppressive, I'm thinking you should probably go to Somali. Go to Libya. Go to Korea. Libya. Liberia. Yeah. Anyway, Um, um, ladies and gentlemen, please avail yourself of going to the uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. There for free, you can download my husband and I's radio show, which is the Uncooperative Radio Show, Politics. Deb and our show, The Women of the Revolution, is up there. Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us, about the Continental Congress of 1787, day by day, in the founder's own words, from Madison's notes. Uncooperativeradio.com, uncooperativeradio.com. We are weaponizing knowledge, and that site will give you the tools. And Deb, she always takes us out. Okay, let's see. Um, Where do I start? I have to say uh, that um, there are some good things happening because Trump is president with our veterans. Not nearly enough, but he's up against a big political wall uh, known as the Congress, who doesn't seem to want to work with him very, very much. But... um, Basically, if you if you listen to 
the Congress critters at this time, you would think that they were bending over backwards and doing backflips trying to get our veterans the benefits they they have earned and were promised and aren't getting, but they're not, and they don't think that you care and that you're not going to watch. Um, you just listen to their campaign promises and vote for them, and that's all they care about. 75% of their time spent in in their term uh, in Congress or the Senate, in the House or the Senate, is used as for fundraising. Or they're sitting um, in ridiculously stupid hearings that do nothing because getting a committee chair is a big deal and they will sell their soul for one, and many have. The veterans um, still need a lot of attention. So, like I always say, go visit your local VA, check it out, talk to the uh, guys and gals there and, and see if uh, everything's going okay, and if not, make a lot of noise. You know, march right up to the administrator's office or, you know, go to your uh, local VSW, American Legion, or Rolling Thunder and talk to them about um, what you might have heard and they'll check into it. Don't you worry. They, they meet once a month usually at their local... Uh, VA hospital to meet with the the uh, heads of departments at the the VA hospital. So you can always talk to your local chapter. And if they don't do this, you tell them they should start. We are losing guys over in the dangerous areas. Uh, Niger, we let's see, was it last week we lost four brave young kids in uniform? Well, kids in uniform. I say kids, but not kids, but there are kids. Losing them, you know, we're all one family, and uh, losing them is like, you know, we lose one of our own. So pray for the safety of our troops and, and give a thought to the families waiting for the ones who are in very icky, dangerous places to come home safely. Um, and if you know of a military family in your neighborhood, if you see a, a young mom with kids and and find out her husband is deployed, or if you see a husband with young kids and his wife is deployed, see if you can help him out in any way. Uh, geez, it, it, it's hard. It's definitely a, a hard thing when you're worried about your husband and you're trying to keep your kids not worried. So, yeah, lend a support in hand if you can well, anyways, I hope you enjoyed the show. Well, so, uh, so glad to stop by. I know it was a hard one, but um, you know, it's 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 really good to know what our forebears went through. Uh, it gives you an appreciation of what you have today. Really, it does. So, y'all uh, have a safe week out there. And keep your powder dry. Make some noise. And hopefully we'll see you back here next week, same time, with another um, story of a woman during the Revolutionary War. And thanks. Uh, Good night. God bless. God bless this wonderful country. Good night, Loki. We miss you so. All right. See you next week.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.